Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by Gage. Gage is a free and open source test automation tool by ThoughtWorks with a goal of taking the pain out of test automation for acceptance tests. To help with this, Gage supports specifications and markdown, which are easy to read and easy to write. Reusable specifications to simplify your code, which makes refactoring easier and less code means less time maintaining your code. And finally, integration. Use Gage with your favorite tools and IDEs in the ecosystem of your choice, like Selenium and Sahi Pro, CI and CD tools like GoCD, Jenkins, Travis, and IDE support for Visual Studio, VS Code, IntelliJ, and more. Head to gage.org slash jsparty to learn more and give it a try. Once again, gage.org slash jsparty. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of JS Party, where every week we throw a party about JavaScript and the web. This is K-Ball, one of the JS Party panelists and changelog correspondents. I was in Carlsbad, California, just a few weeks ago for JSConf US and had the chance to talk with some amazing people. In today's longer than normal but packed with great content episode, I first talked with Michael Chan, aka Chantastic. We covered a range of topics, including how to start speaking at conferences, how your Twitter handle is really your rapper name, why we may be overemphasizing the value of dry code, and the importance of metaphors we use to cover software development. So you gave a talk yesterday. I did. That I saw um, and greatly enjoyed. Um, do you want to tell a little bit about what you spoke on so that our listeners can hear about it? Absolutely. So the talk um, had a little bit of a, a clickbaity title. Um, it was called Hot Garbage, Clean Code is Dead. And the it's kind of hard to, to summarize, but um, the idea is, is that we've started to fetishize certain aspects of clean code. And I think that in some ways we've forgotten what the heart of clean code is, which is to um, keep things changeable, keep things tidy so that when things inevitably need to change, uh, we can change them easily. And we all have that experience where it's very hard to um, hard to change something. And this is when we get angry. We look at our, we look at our screen and we're like, who was the last idiot that did this thing? Because um, it, it doesn't, it, it, it's not going to be able to do this thing and it's going to be really hard to change and, and whatnot. And um, it, sometimes it doesn't matter if it was someone we hate or someone that we like or ourselves like an hour ago. We just have this thing in us where it's like, because we can't predict the future, we're angry about the present that we're in. And um, I think that we just keep thinking that there is some type of magical clean code enchantment that we'll be able to do that will save us from that problem. And the talk is mostly just about the idea that, you know, 90% of the job is just kind of slinging code around, moving it from here to there and the other place. And uh, clean code won't save you from that. Um, it's just part of the job that we we come in, we find something that we that doesn't meet the new requirements. Um, we couldn't have predicted the future, so that's the way it's always going to be. And now we have to change it. And we can be angry about it or just accept it and move on with our life. Yeah, one of the things I loved that you talked about in that talk was around how 
we have this obsession with dry code. Don't repeat yourself. Yes. Cut, cut it down. And that is great when you have mature code yeah. that is no longer changing very rapidly. Yeah. But dry code is also not very pliant code. <laughs> it's uh, rigid and fragile in yes. some ways. Yeah, it can be it can be a liability, right? If you have very dry code that, you know, if you prematurely dry out your code, um, and you don't know everything about what could possibly be added or changed about that feature, um, so many times you're just gonna have to like hydrate it back up again to make sense of it and then redry it out, redry all those abstractions out. Um, it's so funny because like, you know, don't repeat yourself has nothing to do with the, uh, how much moisture is in code, right? But it does end up being a very, um, a very good analogy. Like the, the analogy carries through really well in terms of the experience of what it feels like to work with dry code. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you have a pot, right? You can't once you dry it out, like you're done. It's, it's that it's thing there. forever. <laughs> and sometimes that's what you want. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the reasons that don't repeat yourself is great is that it it does create as you mature a system. Mm -hmm it gets you out of this problem of, oh, I've got this bug in one place, I have to fix it in 10, yeah. and moves down. But when you are in that stage of rapid iteration, mm -hmm. it's painful. It, it can be really painful. One of the misconceptions about the talk, and I think something thing that I've had to convince a couple people out of, um, is that I'm, I have no intention of saying that clean, the practice of clean code is dead. I think that there are aspects of clean code that are really good. Um, it's just that the context is critically important in determining what is the best, what are the best rules to apply in this situation. So, you know, dry is really great, as you said, with code that is, is known. Uh, it is really good not to repeat yourself in situations where you're using the exact same, uh, same piece of, or the same concept, right? But clean code can often lead to things that are harder to work with. And it's not its not that clean code, the practice is dead, but clean code often more resembles like a dead thing. Like you said, like a pot. You totally dry it out and now it's a pot for forever. And you have to, you know, you have to be really dramatic sometimes about how you change that into something else. Like you have to break it down into, you know, uh, whatever pots are made out of <laughs> and then kind of make it a new thing again. And uh, I think we feel that in code a lot sometimes. Definitely. Well, and I think another big idea, because we talk so much about generalization mm -hmm. and drying things out and making things super clean, and, and these are worthy things to aspire yeah. to, uh, but we often do it prematurely. Yes. Especially folks who are kind of just getting into the industry and haven't felt this pain over and over <laughs> and over again. You know, I, I like to say, you know, make it once. If you need it again for something else, make it again. Make it again. <laughs> if you need it for something else, by the time you're on your third time, you might know enough yes. to start generalizing it. But yeah. don't try to generalize it when you've just made it in one example yeah. or two. Yeah, I, I use this example a lot where you you need an, like a modal for something. Like Let's say you're making a person edit modal. And I don't know why, but we never go for just building the one thing that we need. You never sit down and type in like make new file person edit modal.js, right? And that's a more pragmatic way to think about it. I'm making this thing, I'm gonna make it as specific as possible, and then we'll determine the general aspects of it later. Right. We always go, I need new modal, modal.js, <laughs> and think that that has the potential to maybe stand the test of time for whatever reason. And 
it almost never does. We're almost always wrong. I am creating a person modal, and therefore I will create the ideal platonic modal <laughs> that will stand the test of time throughout the entire lifetime of my application. Yeah, and that and and sometimes that that moment where you have to like break the pot down and kind of like remake clay out of it um, is is like a rewrite, right? And those are just I don't know. I I'd prefer to do small rewrites all along the history of my app or on, all along the life of my app than one big rewrite that we have to get right at that point in time for like the rest of rest of time. Yeah, if you do a massive rewrite, you lo often lose a lot of embedded knowledge. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Edge cases, corner cases, all this sort of thing. Like I there's another thing I, I also fall in that camp. I tend to advocate against from the ground rewrites. And if yes. you're going to do it, do it a piece at a time. Yep carefully yep. scope it make sure your interfaces are clean so that you can try out your piece by piece rewrites and yeah. not lose all of that hard won knowledge that's embedded in the code yeah yeah i think we don't think about rewrites granularly enough as you're saying like it makes a lot more sense to rewrite things piece by piece and i think when you've been around a lot especially if you've been in the same uh, code base long enough to have replaced your own work, you start to realize like that in some ways, like everything is a rewrite. And if I get in the habit of rewriting smaller chunks as more is revealed about our customers, about the product that we're making, you get better at doing those small rewrites and it becomes less attractive to do a top-down rewrite. Um, you kind of just identify like, hey, this thing has continually been a big pain in, in the butt. Uh, let's just rewrite this part of it and know that next time it'll be like a little bit, little bit easier to change the whole. One thing that you also touched on in your mm -hmm. talk that I think is really applicable to this is this question of where are we drawing our metaphors from? Uh, <laughs> yeah. We use a ton of language in software development that derives from uh, traditional physical construction. You know, yes. We talk about architecture. We talk about... Uh, Engineering, engineering, development. Exactly. We use frameworks and scaffoldings and all kinds of things. Like our language is embedded in this world where you create things once. Yep. It's gonna it's gotta stand the test of time. Mm -hmm. You have to do all of this upfront planning. And it's also something that we know pretty well because it the technologies have been around for thousands of years and <laughs> yeah, maybe yeah. they've changed a little bit but <laughs> you're still using two by fours to, to right, frame I mean, a house exactly like if you use the same tools in if you're in the javascript world like your tools change every six months practically yeah. right <laughs> yeah, like it's yeah. it's not the same type of thing and so perhaps another metaphor would be useful and i, mm -hmm. I liked your idea of making it a more organic metaphor yeah i it kind of goes back to that idea of rewriting i was thinking about things that are repeated and I was thinking about the fact that we our apps aren't like something that you 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 build up you, you plan out and, and and this is this is my experience I know that a lot of um, apps are still built in kind of a traditional you know we're gonna build this thing for six months it's going to get um, you know sent out we have this big release once a year and a lot of software is still built like that but I think a lot of web applications are built in a totally different way where we put something out and then we hear what customers have to say about it and we change it pretty quickly, like sometimes immediately. And that is one of the beautiful things about what we do is we have this really tight feedback loop with our customers. Um, 
But sometimes, I think emotionally, we still write code as if we need to get it right on day one, and that because that's going to be in production in that way for a year until the next release comes out. And I think for a lot of apps, we have the benefit of being able to be wrong, see what happens, and then fix the mistake later, and actually have our customers love us for it. And so I've started to started to think about how that's a little bit more, you know, like farming. There's a, there's a seasonality to it. There are unknowns. You know, like the weather plays a lot into what we're able to deliver to our customers. Um, customers shape the type of products that we we create and get good at. And the fact that you know, living things don't always do exactly what they expect us, we expect them to do. We kind of, you know, sometimes they push back on us a little bit and, you know, the, the harvest isn't as good one year as opposed to another. And I have really been enjoying personally this idea that I, I come to work and I'm going to kind of wrestle with the app that day. And, you know, the weather might not be as I like it and the... Um, response of this living thing might not be quite as I like it, but my work is just to keep at it, to, to keep coming, knowing the conditions are, are going to be different every day and just keep trying to get the best thing out of this product as I can. Yeah. And the additional fun metaphor that you had on there was, well, sure, a lot of code is crap code, <laughs> but what's the best fertilizer? Right? Crap. Right? Well, and <laughs> And in another way of thinking about that, right, organic matter uses broken down organic matter yes. to grow and to, to become better, right? Like the lessons that we learn writing these this bad code and experiments, mm -hmm. things like that really does improve the outcome as we yeah. go. So there, there's, I mean, it's a little bit of a fun stretch, but uh, <laughs> I think there's some truth there. Yeah. And I think that idea that you touched on, the idea of decomposition is really important. We like to think about creating things and building things up, like that's the fun part. Um, but we don't often think about how things uh, break down again or come out of our app. And sometimes knowing the end helps us uh, start better. And knowing that, hey, at some point, this is gonna get pulled out or it's gonna get replaced or the framework that we use today is not gonna be the framework that we use in five years. So how do we how do we keep things that matter around? How do we continue to, um, I'm not, I'm not going to go too deep into the farming metaphor. I was, I was tempted there for a second, <laughs> but, um, how do we keep good things around and kind of let bad things, you know, fall off. And, um, I think there are so many ways to do that, but, um, I think sometimes I'll go into a couple, but like one of them is, you know, testing. I think sometimes we get really deep into the weeds and, you know, in, in testing and, we forget that the tests that are going to stand the test of time are the ones that are closest to the user. The ones where we say, like, the user needs to click this button and expect that this thing happens. And the implementation can churn as much as it has to as long as that end result, uh, end result is the same. Um, as opposed to kind of like the deeper, you, the closer you get to the code and away from the user, I mean, you can be changing tests almost as much as you're changing the code. And that is a very frustrating way to live. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I didn't get too practical in the talk, but one of the things that I talk about is how to identify code that um, is ripe for a refactor or a rewrite. And um, I borrowed this from Sandy Metz, but she was saying that there's a, a graph, a lot of code quality um, products um, show this to you. It might be hidden in some, but I know things like Code Climate has this. 
a churn versus complexity graph. And it looks at each file, determines uh, how complex it is, how many kind of logical trees there are in it, and um, takes that score and then says, how often are you actually touching this? How, how often are you making changes to it? And if you have high complexity, but there's no churn, like the file might look like a mess, but it's hardworking code and you don't have to, it's not costing you money regularly to make changes. Right. And then the inverse is true too. If you have a lot of churn, um, but there's no complexity, well, that's actually great because it means that you can, you are able to change it rapidly. And what you're looking for are the outliers where churn and complexity are both very high. Um, those are the ones that are regularly costing you money. And when you're frustrated, um, that's a, a kind of a reasonable frustration. <laughs> right. And those are good places to look carefully at how can I refactor this to be simpler. Yes, absolutely. Those are, that's where you're going to see the most benefit. And I have found that using that has really clarified a lot of my conversations with managers. So it's, it's less this like, oh, well, you just don't want me to, you know, have a clean place to work. And we're like, hey, this is the data on this thing. We're changing this thing a lot because we obviously don't know what we're building yet. Um, so it would behoove us to make it simpler to work on. I'll be able to turn these things around faster for you. Um, and I mean, any PM worth their salt is going to to hear that and say like, oh, well, yeah, I want I want you to work faster. And if this is the way to get it done, like, let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. I like that as a way of kind of taking this and quantifying it for folks who perhaps aren't able to feel the pain yeah. of <laughs> working in a messy code base. And if we're honest with ourselves, like that's where we are feeling the pain. It doesn't yeah. matter how ugly it is to look at if we never have to touch it. Yeah. So I'm curious, you talked about uh, you know, being able to change out frameworks and things like that, but you're yeah. also sounds like very focused on React with the podcast. So what's your thought? Is React going to continue to dominate or are we going to be throwing it out in three or four years and putting something new in? Yeah, so Lori Voss gave a really awesome talk at uh, this year's JS Conf, and he was talking about all the data that they have at NPM and the things that they're learning about these open source projects. Um, and he says that every framework, popular framework, has about kind of a five-year lifespan, you know, or, or a five-year heyday, right? And React is about in like three and a half, four years into that adoption curve. So it's really, it's it's really unknown whether how long uh, React will be able to sustain this. Um, it is interesting. Some of the interesting facts about React. Are, or that it is on multiple platforms. And so that is kind of unprecedented um, up to this point. The fact that you can use these components and target, you know, web, uh, canvas, native, electron, like that ability is, is a new thing. Um, so that's very cool. But he also posed the idea that it's very possible that, that this, in the way that jQuery kind of proved this concept of document selectors might also be able to prove this concept of what a first class component should look like on the web. And if it's able to, um, to borrow his language, transcend into the browser, um, it is possible that we could be using you know, React for a really long time or some inspired by React way of writing native components. 
Yeah, I mean, that component-oriented architecture, mm -hmm. whether you're using React or not, all of the modern frameworks have essentially consolidated yes. to component-oriented architectures with component life cycles and yeah. some sort of state management solution, often you know inspired by the Elm architecture or Flux architecture. Right. Um, and you see that that's now there in React, but it's also there in Angular, it's also there yep. in Vue, it's also there in Ember, it's now there in Dojo. It's, I mean, I could just keep going on and on and on. All of these different frameworks are adopting that because it is mm -hmm. such a phenomenally useful abstraction for yeah. front-end development. Yeah, that the key innovation of React was how to create an isolated component. And it's amazing how far that spread. Absolutely. So you, you mentioned something to me and we talked a little bit about it earlier, about our Twitter handles becoming <laughs> essentially our rapper names. Yeah, and yeah. I, I kind of want to go in on that idea a little bit in terms of the personalities yeah, that we yeah. assume <laughs> to engage in the sort of broader tech community. Because like, if you think about a rapper name, like that is putting on a persona. Yes. Uh, the, and I'm not a rap expert, but like, I don't know. Ice Cube is not the same person as whatever the heck his actual name is, right? Like that <laughs> right. is his rapper persona yes. that he is putting out there. I heard uh, someone put it like, you know, Madonna isn't walking around her house in like a cone brazier. <laughs> right. <laughs> there is like a, a, a facade in front of the person that is, is the character. Yeah. Well, and I think there's value to that right because oh yeah it, cr it can create a, a separation it can yes. create you know give you the ability to uh both for positive and negative but i think i'm focusing more on the positive to put yourself out there in mm -hmm. ways that you the underlying person might not be comfortable with at all yeah yeah and one of the the themes that came up uh, at jsconf when we were doing our live episode is everybody wanted to know like how do you Put, become a speaker like that feels like a big barrier yeah um, and you started your own podcast and things like that so how has becoming chantastic <laughs> rather than michael or chan how has that changed your your self-perception and ability to kind of put yourself out here man that's a great question um so i am deeply inspired by this book uh titled the war of art by stephen pressfield uh, it's an amazing book, and I definitely recommend it to anyone who is embarking on a creative endeavor. And not creative as an art, but creative where you are creating something. Um, it is an amazing book, but he talks about the ability to separate um, you, and I think he calls it you, Inc. Um, this idea that no matter what you do, you need to be able to think, uh, to separate you, the creator of the, the work, and you ink the marketer of the work. And to be, honestly, even to be able to just uh, establish a value for what, the work that you're doing. Because a, a lot of times, um, anytime, you know, for those of us who are, that are freelancers or doing creative work, we have such a hard time putting a value on it, like putting put a, a number on it and asking for a fair wage. Yeah, thing. it's deeply uncomfortable to so go and say like, yeah, you should pay me $10,000 for this <laughs> yeah. project. You know, in the back of your head, you're going, what? 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 And yeah, no, this is, as I gotten into consulting and things like this, most of us, mm -hmm. and I think it's not just this industry, most of us worldwide yeah. have hangups yeah. about money and self-promotion mm -hmm. and, and like 
asking for things yeah. and you can't have that if you're going to run your own. You cannot. It, yeah. You have to, you have to be able to create that fracture in yourself to be like, there's me and I am kind of insecure about what I do. And like, I know all of the, all of my own warts and what it took to get here. And there's me Inc, which is a baller and is going to ask for what I need to make to make ends meet and more and more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and you'd be amazed when you start experimenting with that because you'll ask somebody, you'll, you'll have a number in your head and you're like, I got to ask for more. I got to yeah. ask for more. <laughs> okay. I'm going to do this because I'm going to give them two options. So then they, <laughs> right. they, I don't feel too bad because they can always go to the bottom one. Right. So I'm going to give them the, my number and then I'm going to my number plus like 50%. <laughs> right. And they're like, Oh, is that all? Like, okay, okay. cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, it's shocking every time you're like, I wouldn't hire myself for that much. But yeah, I think that, uh, man, so back to the, your, your speaking question. Um, I got into this industry, uh, after being, uh, being laid off from my accounting job and being on unemployment for six months. And I was like, you know what? I never want to feel that way again. And so for me, it was kind of this opportunity to chase after a little bit of security, um, to be able to not just be a developer, but one with videos where I have like a, a well thumbed up talk on YouTube um, with some my own philosophies and the way that I think about things. I wanted to put all of that out there so I could have friends in the industry and meet cool people. And I think my desperation to gain that comfort uh, way outshadowed my shame in feeling like I didn't have anything to say or whatnot. And I'm constantly amazed every time I go to a conference, I'm sitting in that speaker room with people that I have admired for a really long time. And they're all stressing out about having to give a talk. Yep. And it's so humanizing. I want everyone to give talks because I think everyone has something to say, but more than anything else, you need to sit in that room with your heroes and feel their stress when they're trying to talk to you. It's, yeah, it's invaluable. I, everyone should talk. I, <laughs> everyone should talk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we talked in the JS party, the live episode that we did here mm -hmm. about kind of what does that take? Like, yeah. how do you apply to a CFP? How do conferences pick their speakers and stuff? So if you're listening to this and you're curious about that, go listen to that episode. Absolutely. It'll um, be super helpful for you. Um, and yeah, it's, you put yourself out there. Maybe you need, if you're having trouble and if you're struggling, maybe you need a rapper name. You need a rapper name. You definitely need a rapper name. If, you're, if your Twitter handle is just your name, you need to change it. This episode is sponsored by our friends at Rollbar. How important is it for you to catch errors before your users do? What if you could resolve those errors in minutes and then deploy with confidence? That's exactly what Rollbar enables for software teams. One of the most frustrating things we all deal with is errors. Most teams either A, rely on their users to report errors, or B, use log files and lists of errors to debug problems. That's such a waste of time. Instantly know what's broken and why 
with Rollbar. Reduce time wasted debugging and automatically capture errors alongside rich diagnostic data to help you defeat impactful errors. You can integrate Rollbar into your existing workflow. It integrates with your source code repository and deployment system to give you deep insights into exactly what changes caused each error. Give Rollbar a try today at no cost to you. No credit card is required. Our listeners get access to the Bootstrap plan with 100,000 events for free for 90 days. To get started, head to rollbar.com slash changelog. In this next interview, I spoke with Juan Pablo Buritica and Julian David Duque, two of the founders of JSConf Colombia. We discussed their experiences starting a JavaScript conference in Latin America, the incredible flourishing of the JavaScript and web community throughout the world, and ways for those of us who are privileged enough to work in this space to create privileged bridges to share those opportunities and our favorite language, JavaScript, with those all around the world. So the two of you are doing a tag team talk. You're working together. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, sure. Uh, we have been working together since 2011, uh, helping build an amazing community in Colombia and also uh, defining like a framework of how other communities kind of start like working, following the same model. Um, we want to tell the story about the community we have built in, in Colombia uh, what we have learned, all of the challenges, all of those beautiful and rewarding uh, moments that you can like see when you see the results and the impact that the community is making. So we want to share that part of our lives with the JSCon family. Right, so just how you see here that we are at a conference surrounded by people who are awesome and love building stuff and love software in JavaScript. It is an experience that is limited to a few folks. And we set out to expand that experience or like make it more accessible to folks in particularly in Colombia uh, with the hopes of building a community that uh, would be sort of self-feeding and would grow. And eventually uh, we would export our experience. We would tell other people how we did it and we would have these Colombian ambassadors all over the world speaking, not only about like Colombian technology, but also about JavaScript. And eight years in, we have seen some pretty good results and we wanna share some of the learnings we've had. So this won't go out until after the talk, so can you give us a, a sneak peek of what, what you're gonna talk about there? Like what are the things that you've seen? Absolutely, so the title of the talk is called The Butterfly.js Effect. Julian, what's the butterfly effect? So the butterfly effect says that something as small as a flap of a butterfly on the other part of the world can cause a hurricane on this side of the world. So we want to show that our little efforts or the things we have done uh, in the past with the community have impacted others and we have created like something massive that it's way bigger than us and it, there is like more than uh, 50k people involved in this huge community. So it has been uh, pretty much what we are going to talk and it has been like an amazing experience to be part of this community. As ambassadors, we, we may have started some of these efforts. We don't take the credit for any of it, but we want to represent, we want to make sure that it is visible and that, that folks in venues as important as JSConf US see this work and 
hopefully this message goes to folks in other communities that are not tech hubs that want to get access to this knowledge and, and, and can get motivated and inspired to start this in their own places, whether it's some rural town in middle America or a remote town in the middle of the Andes. That's amazing. So 50,000 people now involved in one of these things that you know, started from your idea. Yeah, it's a collection of meetups. Um, not, all of them, not all of them are associated, but what we've tracked now is that there's over 50,000 people related to each other in different cities in Colombia that come together to talk about software. And we have a centralized place when, uh, when we have like the most active members of those communities, their leaders, organizers, and it's a good way to start seeing how not only uh, the cooperation and collaboration between JavaScript communities uh, all around one nation, but other different technologies who can learn from each other. Like uh, we collaborate and contribute with the Python, the Ruby th uh, community, uh, Java functional programming, different uh, tech communities that are spawning all, all, all around the region. We are working on uh, helping them, sponsor them, like showing how they can be better organizers. They are knowing each other. They they come to maybe one of the conferences we organize in Colombia, which is like a centralized place where all of these people meet. And from those events, more communities and more efforts are uh, always uh, being born in the in, in the country, so it's a beautiful effect. And al also, what another thing we want to show is that it is a cycle. So this started like from one small event that I was part of, like as an attendee, Juan Pablo was organizing, and then we met and started like working together. Then Juan Pablo was in JSConf US uh, in the reunion family back in 2013. 2013, and from there we started JSConf Colombia, and JSConf Colombia inspired also another others JSConf in Latin America. There, there is a force that are starting to to appear and to work, not conferences that have consolidated yet in other in other parts of Latin America. But our objective is to help them and be able to establish like a framework to be able to let these other people in different parts of Latin America, not only Colombia create something uh, similar or even more powerful than the thing we did in, in, in our country. Yeah, so I think from an infrastructural perspective in countries like Colombia where technology education is really far behind, right? The, the education that you get in, in college is, is dictated by the, the job market and the job market is usually dictated by large companies that have huge contracts with the government or huge contract with banks. And that is the only professional experience that you can get. So unlike in the US, the, the, what is the role of being a technical programmer, a programmer or software engineer is considered blue collar or mm. it's, it's more like labor than a prestigious software engineer here in the States. We believe that the only way to change this and to give access to folks to modern technologies, modern frameworks, modern experience is through communities. Communities are usually connected. They're always trying to experiment and, and share that knowledge. And we can, through these communities, run ahead of any other infrastructure that you, that you may find. So. You can go to a meetup in Medellin and learn about Vue.js, whereas 
in school and university, you will probably not even touch JavaScript at all or any front-end tooling or processes. So in addition to building a community and, and, and sharing this knowledge, there, there is another intention to create a, an actual tech hub that is not driven by government funding or the industry. We do believe in open technologies. We do believe in the open web. And we believe that, that this the only way we can take ownership of this is by giving access to people to this knowledge. I love that. I mean, I feel like so much of the tech industry, there has been the cutting edge has all been so centralized for something that espouses decentralization and openness. We have a ridiculous amount of the cutting edge coming out of Silicon Valley, California, which as much as I love Silicon Valley is a very narrow window of humanity and has a, their own set of biases and a very clear bubble. And you know, having this as something that is really accessible to folks worldwide is huge. Yeah, and, and be able to take that um quote unquote like Silicon Valley experience or these Silicon Valley heroes, these people that you admire, that creates the libraries you use, that creates the technology you use, that they speak at the conference you want to attend. Uh, you know them by Twitter, by YouTube, and these are these like role models that are impossible. They must be like genius. I you you know the feeling I'm talking about. Yeah. Once we are able to close that gap and to create like a bridge between these two, like a developing nation and the hub of all of the innovation, which is Silicon Valley, once we bring these people to this country, or our community is not seeing only their technical expertise, but they know, oh, these people are human, are human that have the same fears, insecurities that I have. Maybe they grew up in uh, better with better opportunities or a privileged um, environment and maybe not you also know people that are like super uh, uh, famous in the JavaScript or tech community that you think are super privileged and they also come from countries where they needed to do a lot of work to be able to to earn that place and to overcome those biases and those fears so those are part of the impact we we also see the communities experiencing is being in touch with these people, seeing that these people is just humans and they can be the same as them. This has created uh, another cult culture of uh, stop consuming products and start building products and start mm -hmm. building technology. And we, we, we are starting seeing more people, not only in Colombia, but in Latin America, with amazing... Um, uh, startups with amazing ideas, libraries, uh, books, being uh, doing a lot of things because they, they were able to overcome that barrier. And it is very, for us, it's powerful. At the beginning, we needed to bring these people to close those barriers. But right now, we will have a JSConf Colombia in November and almost all the speakers that were selected are pretty much new, new names, and new role models, new people that are like also having the experience to grow. So it is, it's amazing. We are coming from these specific persons that had like the privilege to show that everybody can and everybody can contribute, can grow. And it's part of the change and effect we have been uh, working on and believe it can be way more powerful. So if you could summarize our talk, I'd say it's, it shares how we've built a bridge mostly a 
privilege bridge, right? Yeah. Um, I was privileged enough to be in New York and have access to a very healthy tech community. And I was in a position where I could bridge New York and Colombia. And I was also in a, in a privileged position that I could bridge my network, friends from local meetups which like BrooklynJS, like uh, ManhattanJS, which are like world-renowned meetups, and invite them to speak in Bogota and in Medellin in exchange for, hey, I'll pay you a ticket, I'll pay your hotel, come along. Um, yeah. And what, what this ultimately gives us is, or, or, or the mission is to give people in developing nations, in developing places, the tools to solve their own problems, right? So I agree very much with you that there's a center of technology in Silicon Valley that is solving problems. And, and, but, but in many ways, Silicon Valley is solving problems, first world problems. Yep, and, and even Silicon Valley problems, not even the rest of the first world. Right, right. No, absolutely. And these, these don't apply. So it is, it is great that there's a, it's, it's like a research center for the world because you get all this funding going towards the development of new technologies and new frameworks, like the, the, the ability of taking some time to invent the JavaScript framework is amazing. And that's a privilege that working in the technology industry gives you because it gives you free time that you can spend towards that. In Latin America, we are in survival mode, right? You can't really have that much time because we're trying to figure out how to how to survive. I think the income for a, for a programmer in Colombia is an average of fifteen hundred dollars a month. Uh, that's average, and it's probably a lot lower. That doesn't give you a lot of a lot of freedom to work on these interesting problems when you have to take care of your family, you have to take care of yourself. Um, so instead of like seizing the means of production, it's more like seizing the means of prototyping and staging and, <laughs> and giving people access to tools for them to solve their own problems. I love it. So one question. Y'all are focused on JavaScript, but you, you also mentioned that you've connected with other communities. Was there anything about JavaScript in particular that made this really tick? Was there a reason for starting there or just happened to be the communities that you were embedded in? Or Personally, in my experience, um, I've been part of other communities before. I, I tried to work or start the, the, the Linux community in Colombia back in 2001. Java community, uh, those communities never did any click. And when I, once I met like the JavaScript community, when I had the opportunity to interact with the JavaScript community in Colombia, there were like a, a one community that were working based on the model that Juan Pablo uh, knew in New York and in this privileged uh, position he was. And when I was able to be part of the family, I knew that, my God, the JavaScript family is different. It's more welcoming, it, you feel like you belong to something, and the people inspire you to, to do this thing. So not only, we, we are not saying, okay, we alone created this, this huge beast in Latin America. We were also inspired by other people from the same community in other parts. So this butterfly effect, that we are, we are telling, it's from our point of view or point of perspective in Colombia, but we have received the same inspiration and uh, knowledge from 
the whole JS family abroad. So yep. I, I would say that the JavaScript family per se is very special compared uh, to other communities. Absolutely. I think what, what we'll hear that it says is spot on. We are also recipients of like the butterfly effect that other people started. I personally did focus in JavaScript because because of the community, but what what predates this is when I was I got into technology around 2009. Uh, before that, I was a like a line cook that run a kitchen in Fort Lauderdale. I had moved to the states 2007. Uh, the recession came along. I needed a job. I landed in the food industry, and I was there like making my way up in in a kitchen. But I also always liked building websites, and I had learned HTML and CSS, and because I I set up the MySpace for my band, and I just it was a hobby to learn, and I discovered the jQuery podcast where like Paul Irish, and Rebecca Murphy, and Adam Sontag, and Alex Sexton, that predates a little bit this podcast. Um, I would listen to them when I was closing the kitchen, and. I would learn about like if e statements and just a bunch of random stuff. And despite the fact that I was learning, I think it was Joomla and PHP, what I was actually building sites for people on, JavaScript kept calling me. And I heard about JSConf in that podcast the first time. Uh, then they had a recap and like, oh, we went to JSConf. All these and I was like learning about the internals of these community. I, I, I sort of felt that I knew each of them. And then the first JSConf I went, I met Adam. Uh, I also met Rebecca. Paul was there. And, and, and now, more than someone who was like in my ears at a podcast years ago, folks who I consider friends. That's great. Yeah, one of the things I love about podcasts is it really does create that connection. I've met multiple people here at JSConf that previously I knew because they were chiming in on our live Slack channel as we're doing the podcast. And it just, it does create this incredible community effect. I'd like to explore a little bit more what you talked about in terms of bridging privilege, because this is a concept that you know, I've been thinking about a lot, also being in a position of privilege. Um, there's a, a great talk uh, that I'm blanking on the spot about the speaker's name, but uh, talking about lending privilege and how, how you can lend out privilege, particularly if you're in a place of privilege. and. Many folks, if you're listening to this podcast, if you are a white man in the tech industry, let me tell you, you have incredible privilege already and you can lend that out. And you can, you know, I'd like to explore this idea of bridging to privilege as well, because I think it's, it's a slightly different take on this idea of lending privilege, but it, it's really powerful. So the clearest example I can give you right now is the fact that anyone who, who speaks English is privileged enough to listen to this podcast and learn. But if you don't, Going, you don't get access to that knowledge. And the only way to bridge it is by having access to those worlds, right? I speak Spanish, I speak English. I can take some time and translate this or interpret this to folks and then immediately they give up, they get access, right? The, the unfortunate portion of the technology industry is that it's, it's, there's, a, there's this concept like whoever comes first gets naming rights. Technology comes first from an English speaking world and everything that is interesting or mostly everything that is interesting has to be in English. And this leaves out so many people just because they were not born into a country that speaks that, that language or into a country that supports you learning that language. And then it's like a, a cycle of how far, how hard it is for you to get just the basic knowledge to get started a website because 
most of the resources are not in in a, in a, in a language that you that you grew into. The way we bridged it is from the first event that we launched in 2011, which was Bogota.conf, we knew that we needed to have interpreters because we understood that probably the majority of folks who would attend this event, it was 150 of them, would not be in a position to understand technical talks in English at the speed that they go. So we offered free interpretation. That's actually a really interesting idea around... I wonder if there is any resource out there or just central clearing spot for folks who want to translate podcasts, posted talks, things like that to make them accessible around the world. We have seen personally efforts uh, at the open source uh, project level. For example, the Node.js project it has like a very good uh, work around uh, the translation of the documentation and the, and the project. They use like a platform. Uh, and have like collaborative uh, translation, but I don't see specifically like people going and uh, translate a podcast because it requires like audio production. So maybe yes, I can like, do uh, captioning to a podcast if that, right. that works. But doing like the full translation to a podcast is difficult. But what if we start creating content in a language and we start targeting our people and closing the bridge? Normally. And we see the same people enter into technology and they want, they want to be at the level that, like at an international level. And people from our community start publishing in English and start creating content in English. And we are leaving our people behind. Yeah. Because we want to fit in in this global uh, tech community. But by trying to fit in, we are forgetting about uh, our, our people and our language. Yes, I know we need to learn and we need to grow ourselves and get more, more skills. But how can we also close the gap and help others that doesn't have that privilege or they are studying slowly unimproved that, that skill, for example, which is language. And that's only one part. There's more other variables that are considered privilege in a country like Colombia. For example, we organize a conference you want to attend uh, the conference is in the capital of the country. In order to get there, you need to pay a plane ticket or take a eight, nine hour bus ride if you want to make it cheap. Uh, you need to pay a ticket to go to the conference. Uh, sadly, we try uh, to make those tickets uh, as much as affordable as possible. But we need to pay speakers. We need to pay for the conference. It, it, it requires a lot, of, a lot of money too. Yeah. So we need to charge a ticket, at least the most affordable one. But even though these people that want to attend and have talent, they don't have the money, they don't have the means, they don't have the resources. Also, from the beginning, we have created opportunity scholarships. So, okay, you want to come, at least take uh, the ticket for free. Meanwhile, we were growing, getting more uh, sponsorship. And even though ourselves spon sponsored the, uh, the conference with our own money or... Uh, education budget from our companies, uh, we pass from, okay, I'm going to give you the entrance to the conference, but I will pay you to come here and I will give you a plane ticket. And it's uh, beautiful to see in previous JSCOM, we have helped not only people in Colombia to uh, benefit from the opportunity scholarships, but countries like Venezuela, 
that they're suffering right now and having like a social conflict, like very bad social conflict. Yeah, we have benefited people people from that country with all with not only the ticket to the conference, but with plane ticket, hotel, food. It's like a full scholarship. We have seen people that attended this conference doing the same in Venezuela, bringing the knowledge there, even though they don't have the infrastructure. They have the passion and they're sharing knowledge and they're creating communities and they are like, it's the same effect. Yeah. But we want to work on be able to also pass that privilege to this community so those communities can also grow and make a huge impact. Yeah, once so I'll, I'll answer your original translating question and then I'll 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 go I'll jump back with what Julian was saying. So there is a platform called TransFX that where you can crowdsource translation for for texts and it's it's pretty useful i've seen i've seen many communities use it if you have good documentation it is very likely that someone in different in a different language usually spanish will start translating efforts in books and many other things so so documentation does start getting translated fairly common but then tutorials don't and finding tutorials that you can get you can find a lot of basics in spanish for example once you start trying to find something a little bit more advanced it gets very very difficult and also talks there's there's not a huge culture of sharing what you learn at work mm -hmm. outside and also you're not always exposed to great like production challenges of how to scale 55 million requests so you are limited by your own experience which connects to what julian is saying because the, the moment that you can transcend the limitations and like get access to the global market of Of, of, of work as a software developer because you have the skills, because you have the language, then everything changes and you get access to an income that you will very likely not have locally. And this does become a self-feeding cycle. What we do need to make sure is, is like folks who tr are able to transcend into this global market is that we, we pull people with us, right? So... We started and have been dragging a little bit our feet on an initiative that's called Charla, which is a, an online hangout that gives access to advanced and, and mid-level content in Spanish uh, over streaming to everyone in, who speaks Spanish. We have a few that have recorded. I think work has gotten in the way of us keeping up to date with this and, and we, we definitely need to need to bring it back but it's one of these things that we that, that we need to continue to sponsor and provide so that other folks can 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 come along with us yeah i i love the idea of accessing the global market and then bringing the community along i a number of years back and i don't remember the the name of it but i ran into a group that was doing they were based in a small town in mexico And they were doing Ruby on Rails consulting. And they had somebody living in the U.S. who was being essentially a liaison. They were doing uh, business development, finding things, and they would do consulting work. But then they were using this to fund a school and fund village improvement. I mean, it was a small, it was a village of, I don't know, several thousand people, not very large. But they were bringing this prosperity that they had been able to access by accessing the global market and bringing it back to everyone who is there. And I think there's an incredibly powerful effect that we can unlock as more and more people become willing to engage with remote work and you know, the tooling is getting better to make that possible. Uh, the language is still a barrier. 
and having somebody who can liaison or having, I think in that case, what they would do is they had a set of essentially lead developers who spoke reasonably good English, who would form your primary bridge to English speaking clients and then junior developers who may or may not speak good English, but could work with them and, and kind of access that through them. That's amazing. Also, one of the things I love the most regarding this the community coming back, uh, we have seen uh, members of our community that started with just attending a workshop, very young, 14, 15 years old, just attending a workshop, then being recipients of a scholarship for a conference, then they are working on an organizing group, then they got a super good job abroad and they are living in Amsterdam, working for a great company, doing great things, and sadly they can come back to, to the conference, but they start building bridges. And these same people that started like as attendees and work with us and spoke at our conferences are contributing back. Right. They, they were able to, to have that uh, salary increase, that change of, of career path, and they're seeing the, like the fruits of that and they're contributing back to the community through the Opportunity Scholarships. We have other members from a very disadvantaged region in Colombia that were able to break that, break that wall. They're working for amazing companies uh, out there and they're contributing back to the region. They created a foundation. They are, they are doing free boot camps for the young, for the out there in, in this region. Amazing work without any interest of profit. Like just, they want to contribute and help the community the same way they were benefited by the community. I think folks who grow up in a rich country have trouble grappling with the idea of how big of a difference that can make. I spent a while living in Guatemala and you would wonder, you could go through the towns there and you could see which houses had someone living in the States because they would be worlds nicer than the average quality house. And you say, oh, there's that Remesa house. Remesa is the word for sending back. I know you guys know, but for our listeners, it's folks who send back money to the home country in Spanish, that's una remesa. Um, and you could just, you could pick it out visually. Oh, they have somebody who's in the States. They're able to afford a quality of life that otherwise is just inaccessible, uh, particularly more remote places and, and poorer countries. I know Colombia is substantially richer than Guatemala, but it still, it makes an incredible difference when we're able to make these connections from where you are sitting in, if you're privileged in the U S back to someplace that, that doesn't have those opportunities. Yeah. Colombia is richer, but also there's a higher income inequality. Mm -hmm. I think Colombia is one of the top five countries in income inequality. There's a few folks who have a lot of it. Uh, so you can see a lot of the problems that are, or challenges or opportunities that Central America, Latin America, and even cities inside this, the states that, that are disconnected, that, are, that have been sort of like disenfranchised, have. Um, and, and it's one, one of the reasons why we're very big supporters of companies in the states, the companies that I work for, for example, building distributed teams in the states, in cities that are not tech hubs, and also in the Americas. I think we need to... To, to support each other. Absolutely, and being able to be distributed all up and down the Americas is far easier than going you know, overseas to India or some other uh, 
typical outsourcing places because you're in the same time zones. Yes. It's really not so hard. It is good, but you have the challenge of infrastructure. For example, this conference I, uh, I talked to you uh, in this unprivileged region, it's basically forgotten by the government. They don't have infrastructure, a lot of corruption, a lot of talented people, passionate people. They want to do a lot of, a lot of things. But infrastructure is kind of hard. We were at this conference. Uh, they were able to, to get like a, an amazing venue. Uh, more than 200 people attended to the conference. Almost all of the speakers that went to the conference, uh, we sponsor our own trip and our own ticket to go there. I mean, we didn't ask uh, the conference to bring us there. And there was, uh, there was somebody giving a talk and power is out. No Wi-Fi, no projector, nothing. And it comes back in less than a minute. And everybody like shoot up, like, hey, let's come back. And for us it was like a, yes, curious, it was like a small thing. And we ask why you are so excited. Oh no, it, it, it came very fast. Normally it takes two to three days to the power to come back. In that moment you say, okay, even though if these people have the opportunity to be working in a distributed team for an, like a company, a company abroad yeah. or whatever, they don't have the infrastructure to do it. Yeah. Because the, the same city doesn't, are not guaranteeing power, internet. So it's, it's hard in those, in those contexts. It's very hard. Absolutely. So for folks listening to this who have privilege in one form or another, and as you highlight, if, they're, if you're listening to this in English, you have a form of privilege. Uh, if they want to do something about it, what are your thoughts, having been there, having been through this experience of, of bridging folks, what can people do? Give your money away. <laughs> Literally. Like, if you're not a member from an underprivileged population, mentorship doesn't work because you don't understand the challenges. The context is completely gone. But you have money. You have tech money. So give that tech money away to any event that is outside of a tech hub, say so like, hey, I just want to sponsor one opportunity scholarship. Uh, that goes a lot further than, than anything else. And money goes a lot further in places that aren't as bloody expensive as Silicon Valley. Yes, uh, to some extent. So I think Julian was, was th this is something we'll cover a little bit in our talk, but Julian was saying that we, we, we have we have two challenges. One of them is we need to keep our events affordable for the local population. If you are a person who makes a thousand, fifteen hundred dollars a month as your income and you have a family and all these things, you really can't afford anything past two hundred dollars, which is a ton. That's that's a that's a lot of money. Um, on the other hand, the cost structure for a conference in Colombia is very similar to one in the states. I know because I, I was a part of the organizing team for Empire JS in New York, and I'm also the founder of JSConf JS Colombia. So, I think th there's a 20k, 30k difference in in cost structure, but sponsored local sponsorships are impossible to get. Companies initially don't believe that you need the money that you're going to spend it for something else. They don't want to give it to you, so that's really really limiting, and you can't charge people locally. So you have to come up with creative ways to, to cut costs. For example, we don't give food at our events, like lunch or like actual meals. We give snacks because food is one of the most expensive things for a conference to, to offer. Um, 
we do pay all our speakers for trips from anywhere in the world and we put them up in a really nice hotel because they become our ambassadors. That means that we need to come here in the States and all our friends who work at big companies are like, hey, can you put me in touch with your sponsor, like whoever handles marketing? We are like, it's unlikely you're gonna hire anyone in Colombia. You probably don't see us as a place where you market your services or your product or anything, but we can really use the money. Can you do us a favor? Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Awesome. This has been really fun. Anything else you guys want to talk about or, or bring up in this? You should come to Colombia, right? We, we have this conference once a year. It sells out as fast as JSConf US, which is amazing. If it sells out this fast next year, we may consider expanding, expanding our venue and like welcoming more folks. So you should stop by and visit us. Yeah, maybe we can get a JS party representative down there. I'd love JS to come visit. Fiesta. JS Fiesta, that sounds good. So jsconf.co. All right, I'm checking it out right now because I, I don't know if I can make it time-wise, but I would love to be there. November 16, 17, Medellin, Colombia. It's an amazing uh, conference, an amazing city, and definitely you will have a lot of fun and learn a lot. And you can see with your own eyes the beautifulness of Colombia. And yeah, I've you, you will fall in love for sure. Speaking of someone who grew up in the States and has visited a number of countries in Latin America, though not Colombia, it will change your worldview. It is an incredible thing to do. If you have not spent time in Latin America, do yourself a favor and get down there because it will just open your eyes to so many things that you take for granted that are not true, some of them good, some of them bad. And uh, in my experience, it, it really has shifted the way that I live my life. So definitely recommend. So I have some pretty awesome news to share. We are now partnered with Algolia. If you've ever searched Hacker News, Teespring, Medium, Twitch, or even Product Hunt, then you've experienced the results of Algolia's search API. And as we expand our content, we knew that one day we'd have to either roll our own search solution on top of Postgres, or we could partner up with Algolia. And I'm happy to report that phase one of our search is now powered by Algolia. We're able to fine tune our indexing, gain insights from search patterns and analytics. We can create custom query rules to influence ranking behavior, as well as improve our search experience by adding synonyms and alternative corrections to queries. Sure, we could build search ourselves, but that would mean we would be busy doing that instead of shipping shows like you're listening to right now. Huge thanks to our friends at Algolia for working with us. Check the show notes for a link to get started for free or learn more by heading to algolia.com. And by NativeScript, NativeScript is an open source framework for building truly native mobile apps for iOS and Android using JavaScript and TypeScript with frameworks like Angular and Vue. And in this segment, I'm talking with TJ Van Toll from the NativeScript team about why people should care about NativeScript. Thanks, Adam. So I'll give you three quick reasons. First, NativeScript is just a great way to get into iOS and Android development if you're coming from a JavaScript background. You get to use a lot of the tech you might already know when you're building NativeScript apps. So using things like CSS, NPM, Webpack, and of course, JavaScript. Second, with NativeScript, we let you build performant apps. With NativeScript, we're rendering your apps using native user interface components, so we don't use web views in any way. So your apps are really snappy, and they feel great when your users use them. And finally, in NativeScript, we support both Angular and Vue.js. So if you're already using those frameworks on the web, I think you'll find it's just a lot of fun to use a framework you already know and to create native iOS and Android apps using that same tech stack. All right, if you 
want to learn more about NativeScript and you like what TJ had to say about NativeScript and what it has to offer you when building mobile apps for iOS and Android, head to nativescript.org slash jsparty. Once again, nativescript.org slash jsparty. Tim Doherty is a staff engineer at Procore Technologies and a longtime member of the JavaScript community. We had a great discussion about technology adoption at larger companies, how to use the concept of innovation debt to advocate for modern technology stacks, and how to foster mentorship in the community. Now you're speaking just after we talk here. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your talk? Sure. I'm giving a talk entitled ES6 in Practice. And the gist of it is that you know three years later, after the spec's been finalized, browsers are up to speed. But a lot of teams have barely scratched the surface in terms of what you can do with this major update to the language. A lot of it is limited to syntactic sugar. And while all of those enhancements are nice, they're not where the real meat and potatoes lie. And so the talk is equal parts to dive into what I think are the important parts of ES6 and how they've played out over the past three years, and also sort of an entertaining case study on how I learned and then championed ES6 for an enterprise software company. Nice. So any sneak peeks? What are what are the key features in your mind? You know, I think uh, everybody loves uh, the object literal enhancements. Everyone loves template literals and arrow functions and all of that good syntactic sugar. Uh, the real meaty stuff, in my opinion, are the entirely new features, generators, proxies, um, symbols, things like that. And then there's some controversial stuff, the most egregious of which being classes. And one of the key points of my talk is that three years later, JavaScript still does not have classes. It's just syntactical sugar. Yeah, yeah, the JavaScript class syntax mm. is still the prototype model. It which, is indeed. You know, there are arguments for and against, but certainly we should be aware of the fact that that's what it is. Absolutely, and I'm a pragmatist. I'm not one of these people that hates classes. There's a reason for their existence. I actually admire the terseness of the syntax. It just would have been nice if they could have figured out a way to do so without bringing in the class class-based OO metaphor, because it trips up the very same developers who they were trying to court and make the syntax more approachable for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm interested to hear a little bit more about your experience evangelizing this. Uh, you know, it sounds like doing that inside of an enterprise company, I know a lot of enterprise companies tend to be a little slow mm -hmm. on the adoption side. Um, I've done some work with folks who are working on apps that were essentially started 10 years ago and have barely been updated so, I mean, they, they're updated for features, but in terms of the technologies being used, not updated. So how did that go? You know, it, it's always a tenuous process. Enterprise software companies, you know, in our case, we we're publicly owned. And so uh, we had a responsibility to be conservative uh, to a certain extent. Uh, but at the same time, um, when, when we're talking about technology and a technology-based company, uh, you can't afford to fall behind. You get innovation debt, which is something that's not usually recognized. And that manifests itself not just in how fast your team can react to changes in the ecosystem, but also you know, from a pure business perspective, the recruiting efforts. It's really hard to position yourself in a competitive market when you're using outdated frameworks and technologies. So I was part of an enterprise software architecture committee that met once every two weeks, and you know, new ideas, new technologies had to be voted on by the committee. You made your case, you backed it up with data and numbers and cogent arguments, and then the committee voted on it. So um, in some ways this was easier than other challenges, simply because it's an update to the language itself and not a framework right. du jour that's going to you know, fade out of existence. Uh, but yet there was a lot of uh, dubious kind of fear, uncertainty, and doubt around it. The committee's made up mostly of current and former backend developers, and I can empathize, I was one myself for many years. Yep. Um, and so uh, you know, I came to the table with sort of these 
your tried and true guarantees. These are, it's a spec that's finalized. This will be part of the language. It's going to be here for a long time to come. A lot of the pushback was around the timing of it, you know, adopting this prior to browsers having implemented it. And there, there was the reassurance that the community at large is doing it. You know, we're in a, we're in a world now where transpilers are just part of our build chain. Yep. And as long as features have made it past like a stage three proposal, it's pretty safe to use them in production. Absolutely. And so eventually yeah. I was able to sort of wear them down with enough data and enough, enough analysis that people actually are using these tools in production and that it was safe to, for us to move ahead. I like the idea that you just sort of touched on there of innovation debt, because mm -hmm. we hear a lot about technological or technology debt, mm -hmm. right? Code debt. Uh, we talk about um, you know, actual debt and various things, but can you explore that, that concept a little bit more and how it plays out? Absolutely, and so it actually ties into something I'm doing right now at Procore. Uh, Procore is an amazing company to work for, by the way, and we're always looking for great people, so I encourage anyone that's here at the conference to come and talk to me about opportunities we have. Uh, but one of the things they allowed us to do as an organization, as an R&D organization, was to crowdsource what we thought were the most important problems to tackle in the next fiscal year, and I championed debt debt in all of its forms. There's technical debt that everybody understands, problems with the code that surface later as interest on that unpaid debt. One of the, the less recognized forms of debt though is innovation debt, right? And so innovation debt happens when you fail to stay abreast of changes in technology, changes in process that can improve the way you do work. And it's usually, you know, like other forms of debt in R&D, it usually comes to a head in a really egregious way. Like for example, you now have a, a five-year-old code base, a 10-year-old code base even, that no developer in their right mind wants to touch, including the people you have on board. And so what happens is, in, almost invariably, the good people you have leave to pursue other opportunities where they can work with later and greater technologies, and your recruiting efforts come to a standstill. So aside from the fact that the, you know, often the technologies and processes bring in and of themselves, benefits, tangible benefits. I mean, the reason why frameworks iterate, the reason why new ones come about is because they solve a problem better than others do, right? So you not only do you lose that, but you end up with a team then that, that can barely stay ahead of their own code. Yeah, no, definitely. I've seen that in some of the places I go in to train folks. Mm -hmm. And the team's frustrated. And they're like, they can see what's going on. Like folks, even if you've been at the same company for 10 years working on this product, like you can see what's happening in the ecosystem and you want a piece of that. It's challenging, and this is one of the things I think, um, especially if you are a tech company, if you are a software company, it is really important to walk the walk. You can't just tell people they'll be working with the latest and greatest. You have to make a commitment to your team and to your recruitment efforts to stay ahead, to stay your know, latest and greatest within reason. And there's obviously uh, constraints around every team, and if you're publicly traded, you may have to be a little bit more conservative than otherwise, but it's really important to stay abreast and stay ahead. Does this play out, so you mentioned the, the human cost with your existing team, mm -hmm. you mentioned the recruiting costs mm -hmm. um, and obviously the benefits of all these years of technology advancements. Mm -hmm. Are there other ways you've seen innovation debt play out? Sure, and one of them is, um, you know, they're, 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 I know uh, the Rails framework is a really popular framework for Ruby shops. Procore is a Ruby shop. Um, we've managed to stay relatively current, uh, but, you know, I have heard through colleagues that have worked at other companies, other rail shops, horror stories of, you know, the innovation get debt getting so bad, they've stayed on an older version of Rails and haven't wanted to migrate, that they've actually forked it and then maintained their own version with the various security patches that are published by the Rails community. And there you have a combination of innovation debt and technical debt, yeah, right? Yeah. It becomes untenuous. They spend so much time maintaining that fork of the framework that their feature work comes to a stop. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting example. JavaScript world, <laughs> I mean, Rails has been around as a framework for mm -hmm. what? 
10, 12 years now. JavaScript that, yeah. world, I don't know if anything's lasted that long. Maybe Dojo. We have um, Dojo just released version two, I think, after all they of these did, years. They it's did. quite remarkable. And yeah. Dojo, we have to thank for many of the innovations that we take for granted today. I mean, we the, do. The yeah. first module system really came out of Dojo, which yeah. later became, James Burke uh, wrote AM, the AMD uh, specification and required JS out of that work. Yeah, I mean, Dojo. that's why Dojo already did that as a meme, right? That's it right. Goes, it goes around. Um, actually, Dylan from Dojo is doing a talk that is React already did that kind of very nice trying to play on that a I'll have to bit. check that one out but um, yeah no there's there's definitely that's that's really interesting um, so I'm curious then to learn a little bit more about how you get out of innovation this mm -hmm. seems like something that you've thought about a lot you've grappled with internally um, what's the pathway out? Yeah, and so you know, I, I have some experience. This will be my 23rd year in software engineering in one form or another. I've been at Procore going on a year now, and um, there's various different ways to tackle this problem. And you kind of have to divide it into uh, your current situation, cataloging your existing debt and figuring out how to repay that. And then uh, you, you look at how do you be a little smarter about not incurring debt going forward. So as far as the existing debt, you know, there are some tools available to us. Lori Voss just mentioned that NPM now has audit built in that will look at security vulnerabilities. There's also outdated that will show you the delta between what you have and what the latest version is. And there are tools, um, there's a great tool called Dependabot that will actually open a PR for you and tell you that your version is outdated. The nice thing about that is it nudges you into action, but you know, a human has to decide whether or not, right. especially if it's a major version, if the risk is high. And so you have to slice and dice those and figure out and prioritize when you can tackle your existing debt. And then going forward, it's you know it's up to your organization to make a commitment to stay on the latest stable version of a framework. And that means that the delta between each update is nominal. You can use right. SEMVR ranges and things like that just to automatically stay up to date with minor versions. And then you make that commitment to do the work that's required to stay on the latest major. Um, it, it just requires a little due diligence at the end of the day. So have you found uh, folks on the business side to be receptive to the concept? I have, um, partly because uh, my personality style is one, and I've cultivated this over my career, is that I'm not afraid just to walk up to executives and bend their ear. And also, as part of this initiative, you know, the leadership of our organization made it very clear that, they, that their doors were open. And so I just jumped right in on that. Um, the hardest nut to crack was the product organization, which is almost always the case. They're focused on delivering features. They're focused on customer value. And so translating what is often a technical problem into something that product can digest um, yeah. is, was, I knew was going to be the hardest. Um, I did manage to get a lunch with our senior VP of product and talked him through this all kind of in layman's terms. And there were a few lights that came on then. And then we had just, I had a, a unique confluence of events where we had this customer summit where we had, you know, these customers came and talked about things that were highest priority for them. And we looked at a bunch of backlog items and lots of these were small debt items, especially UX debt, you know, things like right. the delta between what customers expect and what we deliver. And I had the SVP of product reach out to me on Slack during the event and say, I think I get it. Like that we had this thing come up in one of our customer support calls, and I think that's UX debt. I want to follow up with you. Let's get some time on the calendar when you get back from JSConf and talk about it. And nice. so, you know, I'm actually changing minds and getting buy-in from the people that really need to buy into it, which is the business side. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one thing that we as technical people sometimes, we have to learn painfully over mm -hmm. the course of a career is you need to start with the pain that they are feeling. Mm -hmm. And for the product organization, design organization, it's probably pain in terms of, I want these user experience things to happen and it takes forever to do it, or mm -hmm. it's really hard to do it, or it never comes out quite right. And, and you can kind of talk them through this conversation of the reason this is hard to do is that we're on five generations old of JavaScript and we can't 
do Absolutely. this type of thing. And also, you know, some of the smaller issues, which in isolation seem like not such a big deal, get deprioritized in favor of shiny new features. And then all of a sudden, one of your customers experiences five or 10 of those things all in one session. And it, the, you know, the, the effect is devastating from a credibility perspective. And so I think that's where I was really able to, to flip the switch uh, with right. Brandon and get this thing, this thing rolling from his perspective. So you talked about ES6 is one area where you're doing this. And we say ES6, but it's really modern JavaScript. Like there was this big gap, then we had ES6, and now you know, we've got all these kind of rolling one per year new specs mm -hmm. coming out, um, stuff getting modernized. Uh, some of the th features you mentioned, I think, were not in the first ES6, but actually a couple of the later versions of this. What are some other areas where you are tackling innovation debt um, and where you've seen you know, these things making a big difference if you can bring them on board? Um, yeah, I mean, we are very much a React shop, so the whole ecosystem that surrounds it, uh, Redux and various abstractions on top of that, like the various side effect libraries. Um, you know, we I found recently that a huge portion of our code base was using an outdated version of Redux Loop, uh, which is a, an async side effect handling library. And I was able to convince uh, from the ground up developers just to opt in. And the way I did that, um, another area of tech debt that I think is often unaddressed is test coverage. Mm -hmm. um, we saw in Lori's talk on stats from NPM that something like 21% of NPM users, 10 million users, have no testing at all. To me, that's like I can't fathom that at this point <laughs> in my career. But again, it's I've been around for a while. Right. And so um, I actually had one of these younger developers that was tackling this problem uh, work on a tool that I had written from the ground up with TDD and show him how much safer and easier it is to swap out a new version of a library with a slightly different API when there's tests to back it up. Right. right? That's safe, the red-green refactor. And, uh, you know, often it's a matter of um, fear. People are afraid to take that leap, if they yep. and they feel part of that's cultural. You have to have a culture that allows people to fail and yep. very quickly fix their mistakes. And the other is to show them that there's techniques we can use to make those failures a lot less and a lot less often. Yeah, I think early on, well, it's hard to say early on because JavaScript has been around for so long, but mm -hmm. for a very long time, the testing solutions in JavaScript were poor. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're not in that boat anymore. You know, we've actually got some very good testing solutions out there, and doing TDD JavaScript across the board is is much more achievable now. It is, and in fact, uh, like most of the tooling in the JavaScript ecosystem, it's grown up very quickly, and we're now seeing some of the most sophisticated tooling of any stack happening in, in the web platform. The debuggers are outstanding. They're yeah. very advanced. The testing uh, tooling, particularly Jest from Facebook, um, there's no excuse anymore not to do it. And so you want, I'm very much a mentor and an evangelist. I'm giving a, a course at work actually on front-end test-driven development to demystify all of this stuff and show people that it's actually not that hard, that the bigger leap is probably getting into the mindset of test first, um, yeah. not the tools themselves. The tools are robust and very fast. That's actually another area that I've been talking with folks about and I'd be interested to explore with you. So many of the people that I have talked with have highlighted that we as an industry have a bit of a mentorship gap. Uh, we, you know, as the industry started to blow up with the most uh, recent round of big tech companies, we there was a reaction of, oh, we've got to have all these boot camps to help people get into the industry. And as a result, we have a glut of entry level folks, mm -hmm. but we don't globally do very well at getting people from, okay, I'm started, I'm entry level or one or two years to how do I progress to become a more and more senior developer? Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like 
you've got some systems in place within the company. Can you talk a little bit about how those work and your experience both there and other places in terms of mentorship? Absolutely. And so that's been something that I've very much focused on in my career. I had some people early in my career that took me under their wing and, and helped me grow as a developer, and I've wanted to give back ever since. And you know, I, I really enjoy learning because learning benefits not just the student, but also the teacher. If you want to learn something, the best way to learn it is to teach it. And so um, at Procore, they're very much a learning organization. So we have, um, we have funding from the state of California for structured education programs, and we also do lots of informal sort of trainings on the job. We have lunch and learns at least once a week, and we have these formal Dev Academy courses. The TDD one that I'm teaching is coming up in September. Um, the organization very much focuses on the growth and development of its employees, and so we encourage pair programming, mob programming, all sorts of things that should encourage younger developers to learn from those who have been around for some time. And then personally, um, I took over stewardship of Santa Barbara JavaScript Meetup about four years ago. Uh, it was languishing, like meetups are, are opt they do. They tend to do, yeah. yeah. People take on a responsibility and don't realize what's actually involved in running a meetup. Or life changes, right? Exactly. I started a meetup and ran it for three years and then I had kids and I yeah. was like, well, sh I can't do this anymore. Yeah, so know? I've got two kids and a stepson, and I'm also president of Paradise Dive Club in Santa Barbara, and I work full time. <laughs> All right, <laughs> and man. I run man, Santa what, Barbara Jazz. What's your meetup. secret? Yeah. What's your so secret? So what's your excuse? No, I'm just <laughs> I'm totally kidding. But uh, when I took over that meetup, I, there were two things that I had in mind. First and foremost was to create a community in Santa Barbara uh, for the local JavaScript community that was safe and that no topic was out of bounds and that people could, could come, you know, younger, inexperienced people could come and ask any questions they want without being, without feeling like they're being ridiculed, right? Right. And then the second um, was to provide the opportunity for people to connect from a mentor-mentee relationship as well as an employer-employee relationship. And so we've had some really successful couplings of people finding jobs and people finding tutors and these kinds of things. And the community now, four years later, is thriving. That's um, the, the idea of Deliberately focusing on connecting mentors and mentees is mm -hmm. a good one. And it's one I wish I'd known when I started San Diego JavaScript, you know, back in 2011 or whatever it was. Because we, we had a focus early on on, you know, getting everybody able to speak and connecting employers and employees. It was mm -hmm. a smaller tech scene at the time, um, or particularly front end web scene. Yeah. Um, so we always had, you know, who's hiring, who's looking for work, things like that. But I think if you're running a meetup, having just a brief section of who's looking for mentorship, who's willing or interested in mentoring and just having that as a, I mean, it doesn't take long, a minute at the beginning or end of a meeting. I mean, that's all we usually did for hiring is we'd say, who's hiring? Who's looking to hire? Okay, everybody who's raised their hand, go find one of the other folks. Yeah, right? if, if I can cross over to my other major passion, which is scuba diving, every time you're on a dive boat, that's the first thing they ask, who needs a buddy? Right, and then those people that came single, none of a buddy, you mentor them up, right, and you get them, get yeah. them out diving together. It's, it's so key and that can fill some of that gap, you know, because Certainly, there are, there are plenty of folks out there who want to teach, who are happy to teach, who are happy to help you, especially for motivated folks. Like, I mean, this is something that I don't know how exactly you bridge in a meetup. I've found folks will reach out to me and say, hey, I want to mentor. And I'm like, great, what are you, you know, I, I'm willing to mentor folks, but what are you, what have you done so far? What have you tried, what are you stuck on? What are you trying to work? Oh, I'm just getting started. I, I haven't checked anything out. Yeah. Um, well, I'm not sure what you want me to do for you. Like. You, that a lot of this is online, you just got to start. Whereas right. you come in to a mentor and you say, hey, I've got a, a question, can you help me? I've been trying to figure this out and I'm stuck. Like almost, I won't say anybody, but very large numbers of senior folks will happily sit down and help you figure out a specific problem. And if you continue to show interest and excitement, like I've got a couple folks that I mentor regularly based on that. And it, it comes from showing commitment mm -hmm. and trying to do it yourself, but also being willing to ask for help. 
Absolutely, and I, you know, I even take that one step further, both at work and outside, in that if there's an area that I'm passionate about, like test-driven development, for example, I will actively pursue people. Um, so, you know, we we have uh, the code base there at Procore. It's, again, it's a younger organization, and so the front-end test coverage isn't where I'd like it to be. Yeah. And so I've basically just gone and identified tools with lower test coverage, and then just approached those folks directly and said, hey, are you guys interested in learning how to write tests and write good tests and bump your code coverage up? And then I take an active role in getting the men mentees to come to me. And then um, the other thing that we've done with the JavaScript meetup, in addition to the monthly talks where we have someone stand up and talk about something, is we've done these kind of pair-in-the-pub things. Uh, one of my co-organizer, they have a little pub in their startup, and we just get people, tell them to bring their laptops and a problem they're working on, and we're there for them to help them work through things. And so, to your point, that's a great way to have a focused conversation and get them started. Absolutely, and as you mentioned earlier, every time you do that as a mentor, you'll learn something. Oh, yeah. Like, folks will ask a question, and it'll twist the way you've been thinking about it, and, and you'll learn something new, even if it's something you've been doing for 20 years. Sure, well, you know, as I'll cover in my talk, um, yeah, I've been following the spec for a little while as ES6 was coming to fruition, and I was really interested in going deep and learning it myself. And so I went and put together a three-part series of talks and hands-on test-driven coding exercises that explored the entire surface area of the spec, everything in ES6. And um, that forced me to get up in front of people and know my before I actually started opening my mouth and talking about it. Yeah. And then I was able to sit with people with their laptops and walk them through, like, this is how it actually works. And that's where the real learning happens, in my opinion. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of JS Party. A big thank you to Derek and Gage who made it possible for us to be at JSCon. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelog.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelog.com slash community. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more about them at fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com slash changelog. Assuming you're loving this show, go rate, review, or recommend it wherever you get your podcasts. JS Party is edited and mixed by my man Tim Smith, and the beats are from the one and only Breakmaster Cylinder. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Thank you.